Hello and welcome to another edition of the China and Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander in Paris, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Kobus van Staden in Cape Town, South Africa, who brings us this year a new title, a new role, and a whole new life without a formal paycheck. Kobus, tell us about what you're doing now. I am now a postdoctoral research fellow at Stellenbosch University, um, and I'm I'm kind of divided between the the uh, Department of Political Science and the Center for Chinese Studies. So I'm gonna I'm doing a one year research project on the expansion of of Chinese and Japanese media related soft power in Africa. Well, that's perfectly suited for our topic today, and we're hoping in the future to be you know using. Cobus's uh, kind of connections inside Stellenbosch to bring us uh, students and faculties and, uh, you know, their contributions on the podcast, as well as uh, when we finally launch our China Africa Project website, uh, to also get some contributions from the Stellenbosch community there as well. So a lot of Stellenbosch will be happening in the next year, so we're really excited for you. But let's start with our three topics this week. Uh, topic number one we're going to talk about is the launch of CCTV's new uh, 24-hour service out of Nairobi, Africa, their African TV service, and, and you know on the subject of soft power, as Cobus was just referencing. Also, um, Al Jazeera in the past week uh, has run and is currently running a documentary produced by uh, a PhD candidate here in Paris, Solange Chatelard. And we're going to talk about um, King Cobra and the Dragon. And finally, we're going to end on a potentially very, very dangerous public relations uh, problem for the Chinese, which is the issue of rhino poaching and elephant poaching in southern Africa. So those are our three topics. Um, let's get started really quickly now with uh, the launch of CCTV uh, in Nairobi. Now, this is part of a broader global launch of CCTV. And let me just kind of set this story up, Kobus, before we kind of get into the details of what happened in Nairobi. CCTV um, and the, the Chinese government in general feel that they are not being well represented internationally in the global news market. So they have made a commitment to be in what's called the top three. So the top three internationally is Al Jazeera, uh, CNN, and BBC. And so they are now in the process of building a huge production center in Washington with an estimated 100 journalists. And part of that global launch was also to build a production center in Nairobi. So um, what is your thought when you, when, you, when you see the launch? We've been hearing about this for a long time. Will this actually work? Um, I think... You know, kind of. I, I think it, it depends on on who who it's supposed to work for. You know, kind of in terms of in terms of um, heightening Chinese presence around the world, kind of you kind of launching them into into kind of you know higher media prominence. I think it would definitely help. Um, I'm a little bit kind of wondering about who is supposed to be watching it and, and you know, kind of what, what the roles will be that it will play both inside of Africa and outside of Africa. Um, you know, kind of the, you know, from, from, what, from what I could understand, um, you know, they have this kind of like double double agenda to, to heighten Chinese um, Chinese prominence in Africa um, and then to also bring some African content to the wider kind of CCTV market. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a little unclear to me, um, you know, kind of how both of those are actually going to play in reality. See, I'm very, very skeptical. And, and this goes in part because of the experience in the United States. The Chinese sometimes don't seem to understand, and I don't mean to sound condescending in any way at all, 
but don't seem to understand sometimes the difference between distribution and quality content. And what that means is that in the United States, on many of the major cable networks, on Dish Network and on DirecTV, the two primary satellite distribution networks, uh, CCTV9, or what's called now CCTV News, is available everywhere. Yet I have never, not a single person, any American I've ever met, has said they actually watch it. So they're very good at getting distribution. The problem comes in actually making content that people really want to watch. And this is where my skepticism comes in, in part because there really isn't much of a deep journalistic tradition inside of China. And, and there's also this different idea of what the media is supposed to do. The function of the media is to be the throat and the, you know, according to traditional communist Chinese, um, you know, mentality, it's supposed to be the throat and the mouth of the party, not even the government of the party. And so I don't know if you're going to see that clash of cultures come in. And in an era where, you know, Al Jazeera just launched a Swahili network out of uh, East Africa, I think Nairobi. Um, you know, France 24, where I am employed, full disclosure, uh, is very aggressive in North Africa and also in Francophone Africa. So it's a very, very competitive market. And I just wonder what the Chinese can bring to the table. Um, you know, kind of the Chinese CCTV has had a presence in, in Africa before before this launch already. I mean, they've been the two, the, both English language CCTV and Mandarin language uh, channels um, are are on the multi choice network, which is the South African cable TV network, which runs all the way um, through Africa. Um, so, you know, to a certain extent, CCTV has already been provided. Okay, so um, let me ask: Have you watched it? Yes, I do. Well, I watch it for research. Okay. I do find it quite boring. Oh, well, there you go. I mean, and that's, that's, I mean, let's just call a spade a spade here, is that what makes Al Jazeera so compelling, and what I'd like to think what makes France 24 so compelling is good journalism, CNN as well, or maybe not even good journalism, entertaining programming, informative programming. And this is where C CCTV just always falls down. I agree. Um, you know, it seems like like they want to move more into production. You know, kind of the from from what I could could gather, they seem to have hired quite a few kind of production like production personnel members um, in Nairobi. Um, you know, and they, they they seem to be you know kind of wanting to to create more TV content. But you know, kind of from from the stuff that I've watched, there is this kind of blandness and this kind of thing of we're all working together. You know, we're expanding relationships. They're not blowing the lid off anything, you know, kind of they don't have this kind of like Al Jazeera style kind of like slight edge of danger to them. Well, and so, you know, the, the key question is going to be when a Chambishi mind story comes up, when, you know, how do they cover Michael Sada? How do they cover the Dalai Lama in uh, South Africa, the visa story? How will they cover these kinds of stories? Um, and if they just avoid them, I, I don't think they'll make any progress. But so... So problem number two comes in the fact that unlike a lot of other media, um, you know, I'm an American, yet I'm in the, I'm in the senior management ranks at France 24. Um, if you go to CNN, there are Brits, there are Australians, there's people from all over the world in the senior management. The Chinese have a very, very difficult time allowing foreigners into the senior management ranks and giving up control. And what's absolutely essential is that they follow, if they want to be one of the top three, they follow the ranks of the BBC, of CNN, of Al Jazeera, and internationalize their senior management and actually give some authority to them, give some power to them. 
And that's where my skepticism really comes in. So as we talk about China's broader soft power agenda, the fact that they want to contain it all within their own ranks um, is ultimately quite limiting. I think it, what also comes, you know, comes into this issue is that the media, um, uh, you know, kind of in the Chinese media tradition. I mean, this in this case, not only CCTV but also Xinhua, um, have had a kind of a dual role from um, where. You know, kind of, they, they they cover some of the territory traditionally covered by Western journalists, but also some territory covered by Western NGOs or diplomats. You know, kind of where they 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 conduct a certain amount of research that that plays to a limited party-only readership. Um, you know, and that I think is going to be a, a very very difficult thing for them to work out, particularly if they want to inter to internationalize. Um, I don't know if you saw late last year there was a scandal um, in Canada around uh, you know kind of a relationship between between a Xinhua journalist and a Canadian MP, mm -hmm. and big, like lots of hard questions asked in, in Canada about what what kind of you know information change hands there. So, I mean, this is going to be a, a very, very difficult thing for them to, to work out. Well, let me just say that I've underestimated the Chinese on numerous occasions to great embarrassment. So um, I, I don't say it's impossible for them to actually pull off something compelling. I'd say that what they have done to date has not been very impressive. Um, what they've done to date does not demonstrate a, a, a full understanding of the realities of the contemporary global media market which is far more international in its management ranks and far more provocative. And as you pointed out all too well, is that the programming is really great for researchers, great for journalists, but the average kind of person on the street is not necessarily going to pay attention, especially when there are 50 other channels to choose from. And even in Africa, where a lot of people in the West say, well, they'll take anything because it's free, uh, African media consumers are very, very discriminating. And just like every media consumer. And so the Chinese have to come in and build something that is actually compelling. So I think that'll be the big challenge. What are your prognosis for success or failure on this in, say, in the next two or three years? I mean, I, um, I'm excited about the fact that they're doing it. Because, you know, for, for a long time, the kind of CNN of Africa idea of a, of a continent-wide kind of news network has been a kind of a holy grail that's been chased by a few different, uh, you know, kind of outlets, including uh, the South African Broadcasting Corporation, where I used to work, who got themselves into quite kind of serious economic trouble trying to pursue that. Um, you know, so... You, you have a situation still where, where Africans need to go to the BBC or to, you know, to, to and, and some kind of international foreign network to try and find out what's going on in other parts of Africa. Um, you know, so there's definitely a gap there. But um, again, whether, whether CCTV is going to be filling that gap, especially in the next two years, I'm, I'm a little dubious. Okay, okay. So well, let's talk about somebody who is actually setting the standard and someone that we can look up to in some senses is Al Jazeera. Um, you know, Al Jazeera for a long time was the Arabic network and in the United States. It was often referred to as the terrorist network because that's where Osama bin Laden oftentimes relayed his messages through. Uh, today, Al Jazeera English in particular is, in you know, 
in you know, I hate to say this coming from France 24 because I never want to say that the competition is better, but at the same time, some of the stuff that Al Jazeera is doing is absolutely amazing, and one of them is their documentary series. And they just recently launched a documentary called King Cobra and the Dragon, produced by none other than Solange Chatelard, who, full disclosure, is actually a good friend of mine here in Paris. She's a PhD candidate at Sciences Polytechnique. Um, and she was spent uh, quite a bit of time with Michael Sada and Rupia Banda down in Zambia at the time of the elections to talk about the role of the Chinese in the elections and also kind of to paint a picture of the, the, the Chinese in Africa, particularly in Zambia, where it's been the biggest flashpoint in part because Michael Sada has been one of the most, if not the most, uh, vocal critics of the Chinese. So what were your impressions of uh, King Cobra and the Dragon? I really liked it. Kind of, you know, some of some of the points, you know, kind of echoed what we discussed before, you know, kind of about about Zambia and the Chinese involvement there. But I thought she she did particularly interesting work in in kind of lifting out the kind of different different perspectives of Chinese who actually live in Zambia, you know, kind of, and, and the way that their own kind of self-identification um, has changed since they moved there, the different reasons they moved there, the different ways they, they kind of see themselves within this kind of political, uh, you know, kind of flame-up that happened around the election. So I was very impressed. Well, I've used the, the, the link to the show, and you can find it under the documentary series People in Power on the Al Jazeera English website. Uh, and I've been sending the link around to a lot of people when I get into these conversations with people that the Chinese are colonizing Africa. And, and what I think Solange and Al Jazeera did so well with this documentary is to show just how textured, textured the relationship is and how it's really not a traditional colonial relationship that is in the, in the, in the way that you know, the Europeans or the British in the case of Zambia uh, came to impose themselves on, on the Zambians in, in that kind of moralistic and mercantilistic way. Whereas, and by her showing what I thought was so interesting was the peasant as well as the ambassador and showing the contrast between the big state-run projects as, as well as the kind of farmers who are just trying to make a living there. That to me was very interesting. And that's the nuance that I think gets lost uh, in a lot of the coverage of the Chinese in Africa. So that will be, that is something I think very interesting. And, and when we talk about, um, you know, China's soft power in, in Africa, um, to me, those peasants that are there, those farmers, um, are the ultimate soft power in the sense that you saw that the Africans who interacted with those peasants had a different relationship with the Chinese than those who hadn't. So I, I'd be curious to kind of get your thoughts on you know, when you look at soft power and we talk about CCTV broadcasting at Nairobi, if in fact the people power is not one of the most effective things that the Chinese have going as demonstrated in this documentary. Yeah, I really think so. I mean, one one moment in the documentary that really struck me was where she she interviewed the wife of a farmer, um, and she asked um, she asked her whether you know what her kind of reaction would be if her daughter wanted to marry a Zambian, and the wife was like, "Oh, that's fine. You know, kind of it's her choice, whatever. You know, kind of if she if she's happy with this with a Zambian, then great. You know, which you know is, is such a small thing, you know, but actually such a big thing, you know, kind of, I mean, come, particularly coming from a country like South Africa, which, you know, kind of where obviously, you know, kind of racial relationships have been taken to like the worst levels maybe on earth. Um, 
you know, kind of, it's, it's, it's these little moments, you know, kind of where you realize, oh, you know, kind of, this is, there's actually like real, you know, kind of interaction on a human level that's happening, um, you know, it makes it, you know, kind of brings the kind of bigger reality that this is a different kind of, of relationship, you know, kind of, it brings it home. And that's, I mean, it's funny you bring up that, that one example, because I thought that was really the most amazing part of the documentary for me. A, the little girl, when she spoke English, you know, this is a Chinese-looking girl, as Chinese as they come, uh, yet spoke with the Zambian English accent, which I just thought was absolutely hysterical. And you're kind of like, we're in a new space right now, and you know, and this is the frustration that I get when you talk to people and they say, with this weird, you know, implication that somehow whites in Zambia assimilate or assimilate well, and they say, well, the Chinese don't assimilate, and you look at this little girl who with her English Zambian accent and going to school in the local school and, you know, his mother's conceiving of the idea that her daughter may um, actually marry a local Zambian. And you think, you know, we're only five or six years into this big Chinese project in Africa and the assimilation takes generations to actually achieve. So I think you're going to see much higher levels of assimilation, you know, as reflected in this documentary and by this woman and by her daughter than you would from potentially from the whites, in part because they're not divided by class. What I sometimes think is we need new words. You know, kind of we need new words to kind of describe this relationship. Um, because colonialism is, is the first word everyone kind of grabs, but it, it's a very, it just, it just doesn't do the job. You know, kind of, there are lots of, lots of kind of problematic aspects to the, to the relationship between, for example, Zambia and China, but colonialism isn't the perfect word to describe no. those, those problems. It really isn't. But it's interesting, too, when you think about Zambia in relation to South Africa, in part on race relations. You know, Zambia has a white vice president. They now have a very large Chinese population. They have a, a rather sizable Indian and Lebanese population that's there. So this is really becoming a multicultural society. What, from the point of view of a South African, what, do you, what lessons can South Africa provide in terms of African multiculturalism to Zambia? Well, I think South Africa has always been a very multicultural place. Apparently, um, you know, Cape Town is one of the most multicultural cities on earth. Um, and I think it, it seems to me that Africa has always, you know, in, in moments, in, in the, the, the times when Africa has been able to, to create really multicultural environments, like, for example, in Dar es Salaam, um, those, those environments has, or have always been very fruitful economically and culturally. Um, so I think... Uh, at the same time, I think South Africa is in, in a very kind of specific kind of moment in its history, you know, kind of, um, and it's in a moment where, where race baiting and racial polarization is frequently used for political ends. Um, it has always been in South Africa, but it's being used in a post-apartheid way now, you know, kind of, um, and I think to a, to a large extent, South Africa has something to learn from Zambia, actually, because a lot of, okay. you know, a lot of, actually. Other African countries have moved beyond some of these issues, um, while South Africa, I think, are still busy kind of thrashing them out. Okay, well, it's interesting you say that, because I would have thought that it would have been the, the other way around, given South Africa's deep, painful history of race relations, that there might be some lessons. I mean, you know, everybody looks to the Truth and Reconciliation Committee as somehow the ideal in how to resolve some, uh, you know, race, race problems. But it looks like in Zambia, there is this new multiculturalism that's taking root. 
and I, you know, and I really invite everybody to to go out and to watch the documentary and to get that to understand the nuance of 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 ethnicity and identity and class and how the Chinese fit into all of that because it is far more complicated. And that was her conclusion ultimately at the end of the show was that the Chinese relationship in Zambia, but Africa as a whole, is extraordinarily complicated. And that's what I think, going back to your point about how our current vernacular is insufficient to describe what's happening today. So we, uh, we're forced then to back into these old, antiquated uh, you know, words like colonialism or even mercantilism or even you know, assimilation. And those were all defined in an African context in the you know, 1850s, 1860s, and through the 20th, 19th and 20th century. And yet in the 21st century, they don't seem to fit quite as well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, we're gonna f- we're gonna end today on um, on a rather grim story, um, and this is one that I've actually been following quite a bit on Twitter, um, and, and it's one that's been coming up for the for for a, quite a quite a long time. And it, it's the kind of as the Chinese are deepening their engagement in Africa and increasing their presence there, um, it appears that there is a correlation forming between the poaching of endangered species like rhinos and leopards and uh, elephants with the the Chinese presence there and also the the huge insatiable demand for the products that come from these these precious animals. Um, You know, Cobas found an article this week from uh, planetsave.com and I I don't actually encourage people to go. It's entitled South Africa, 448 rhinos killed in 2011. The images are extraordinarily graphic and, and really not pleasant. So unless you've got a strong stomach, I would, uh, I would have just kind of take our word for it that it's a, uh, it, it's, it, it's, a, uh, it's a pretty graphic imagery. But what they basically say is that it's been a record uh, number of, of kills this year, and the connection is um, is back to China and the Chinese. And again, this is not something we can pin exclusively on mainland China. Chinese culture worldwide likes to consume these types of products. So in Malaysia, in Singapore, in, in, in Indonesia, in Macau, in Hong Kong, Taiwan. So this is not simply a mainland Chinese issue, just a little disclaimer there. Um, tell us a little bit more about Kind of the the background of this story, Cobus, and what you've been what you've been seeing in South Africa on this. Well, you know, 2011 has been a particularly bad year for uh, for rhino poaching in South Africa. You know, kind of um, there's been more rhinos killed um, in South Africa in the, in the year than than in in most years before. Um, South Africa has been one of the countries with with a very successful record of of uh, pushing back against extinction. Um, you know, they, they brought um, some rhino species back from the brink uh, through breeding programs. Um, but at the moment, um, conservation officials are finding it very hard to, to kind of to keep up. Um, there's issues relating to, to the policing, the, the kind of areas where the rhinos live are, are incredibly vast. They're very difficult to police. Um, the, the poachers are, 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 you know, related to international criminal gangs and they, they, they're very well equipped. They tend to, to fly in with helicopters, track the rhinos from the air and then shoot them with machine guns. Um, so, you know, kind of it's, it's, it's a very, very emotive issue in South Africa. Um, and like everywhere you go, you see these awful pictures of, of dead rhinos with their horns cut out. Um, 
And there's a kind of a logic that's developing that this is the Chinese. The Chinese, they, there's, a, there's a, a story in South Africa that refuses to go away, that that um, that rhino, ground-up rhino horn is used as a, as a sexual potency drug in, in traditional Chinese medicine, which is actually a misconception. Um, but it's one of those misconceptions that refuses to go away. What part is the misconception, that it is the Chinese or that it actually has any medicinal value and any sexual potency? Well, that um, brown up rhino horn is used in certain kind of Chinese traditional medicine, but it's not used for sexual potency. It's um, it's used, uh, you know, kind of as for for a list of kind of things, including kind of you know, kind of fighting cancer and general well-being and so on. But the the you know the 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 story that that is kind of circulating in South Africa is that it's these Chinese people who are killing all of our rhinos. You know, in order to have better sex, um, you know, kind of, which is which is a story that that's a, the South African media is not innocent in in you know in spreading, um, and you know, the, I think the real the real situation is much more complicated. In the first place, Ch- while Chinese gangs are involved in certain cases, Vietnamese gangs are also very deeply involved. Yeah. Um, yeah. And but these, you know, kind of, uh, but the the distinction between the different uses of the of the horn, the distinction between the different gangs and so on are just not made. It all becomes kind of, you know, kind of lumped at China's door. Well, and that's why I think that China has a bigger responsibility here because they will suffer the, you know, the consequences of this to take a lead on the environmental preservation front and to really come out forceful on this and to, you know, and they, you know, you know, the, the Chinese, when there's a will to do something, they can be extraordinarily efficient and, 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 and effective. Um, and I just think the, the public relations damage from this because of all of the associations that you've described and that, you know, the average consumer, not just in South Africa, but around the world doesn't make the distinction between the Vietnamese gang and the Chinese. They say they're all Chinese. So the Chinese pay the price. It won't be the Vietnamese. It won't be anybody else. And, and so I, I just I don't really understand why there isn't a bigger PR campaign on the part of the Chinese to combat this. Now, the Chinese suck at PR. We all know that. Um, <laughs> they're not very good at it, particularly in Africa. Um, and, and so that might be why. But the, it, it just, I, you know, what I, every time I see these stories, I always have this uh-oh kind of thinking because, you know, the dead rhino is a little bit like the puppy in uh, on the homeless guy in the street here in Paris and in, in in the United States there's there'll be a homeless man on the street with a dog and you know people pass by and don't pay attention to the human but they focus on the dog um, and it just shows you the potency of you know the images of those of, of those dead animals and how people can yeah. really people who have no stake in the Chinese in Africa will get involved Absolutely, and I mean, there's something otherworldly about rhinos. You know, kind of when you see them, in, when you see them in real life, they're so big, they're so quiet, they're so kind of. There's, it's like seeing a, a unicorn. You know, kind of. Um, so it's I, I, I have I have sympathy for them. You know, kind of obviously. Um, I think in South Africa, it, it kind of there, there's there are other kind of um, you know endangered species trade that 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 is. Kind of where there's more real hard proof of, of Chinese involvement, particularly the trade in abalone, which is uh, you know kind of which is obviously a delicacy in China and which has been fished um, you know to almost to the to the to the brink of extinction in, in South 
Africa. And, um, you know, there, there are, there's quite a lot of, of, of real research indicating that there's, there's uh, relationships between, between Chinese, uh, between the Chinese mafia and abalone uh, fishers in, on the west coast of, of, of Cape Province in South Africa. But, you know, kind of, I think the, the, the story becomes, oh, the Chinese, they want everything. They want to kind of, they want to rob the, you know, strip mine the entire continent of everything they can get. And I think that is something that the Chinese themselves need to combat. And you have, I mean, you are embarking now on a year-long academic pursuit of Chinese soft power and Chinese media in Africa. Do you have any sense that the Chinese will actually do that? I think, um, you know, it's it's difficult for me to say at this uh, to say at this moment. But um, I think the setting up of, of the kind of media networks that we've been discussing definitely, you know, kind of creates the kind of highway down down which they can actually achieve that. Um, I, I I wonder um, whether they have the kind of level of awareness of how these things are playing in South Africa. You know, kind of, and whether they they kind of really have the kind of uh, vocabulary and, and and media skills to be able to to combat it in the African media market. That's what I'm what I'd like to find out. Yeah, I can guarantee you that if they only use their own highways, you know, the CCTV TCTV networks to communicate, they're going to fail because as you and I both know, not that many people watch it now and it'll take time if they are going to build an audience, it'll take time for them to get up there. So they have to figure out the local media channels and how to communicate through those channels in order to reach the broader audience and I don't get the sense that there's much um, there's much movement on there, and in part that comes from the fact that the embassies around Africa do not have the authority to do these projects independently to embark on these PR initiatives. That all comes from Beijing and is centralized. So while you may have a rhino problem in South Africa, you don't have one in Libya. And so the, Libya, the South African embassy in Pretoria may say, we need to do something, but that's organized out of Beijing. And so that's why I am I, I'm somewhat skeptical that the Chinese will, will rise to the challenge on the media side of this and, and really kind of take it head on. But I do think it's a huge, huge pitfall for them if they don't get this right. So um, that is definitely a story that we're going to continue to watch. Um, that, unfortunately, is all the time we have for today. Um, Kobus, if people want to find you on, uh, on, online on Twitter, and uh, hopefully you'll have plenty of time to be tweeting from Stellenbosch, uh, where can they find you? I am at Stadenesk. It's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And do you think you, you'll be tweeting more or less now that you're a postdoc? Definitely more. Okay. <laughs> well, that'll be good. We'll be, it'll be fun to follow you. And, of course, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at E-O-Lander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. And I'm tweeting four to five stories pretty much every day on the, on the Chinese in Africa. And, uh, and of course, we're going to be launching the ChinaAfricaProject.com. It's kind of there in rough form right now, but keep your eye on that site. That'll be launching in the next uh, three to four weeks. Um, and until then, we'll be back with another podcast um, probably in the next two weeks. We're going to try to do this every two weeks, twice a month, on the latest topics in, uh, in Chinese and Africa news. And if you have any suggestions on topics or things that you'd like us to talk about or questions, you can hit us up on Twitter. That'll be it for this this week. We'll talk to you in about two weeks from now. Talk to you later.